0: Well, we're returning this morning to our study of the book of Romans. We're in that section of chapters 9 through 11. We're looking at the verses today. Chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. And if you are able, I would ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 14, says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means... For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Friends, this is the word of the Lord that is given by God because he loves us. You may be seated. All right, let's be honest with ourselves. We're all about fairness, right? If you don't believe that, I'll invite you to two places in the life of our church to find it. One is, come watch a New York Yankees game with me sometime and hear how many times this spring or summer I go, why did you make that call, ump? Can you believe that? I'm still yelling and screaming about the 2017 and 2019 American League Championship series that was stolen from my beloved Yankees by the Houston Astros in that sign-stealing scandal. And I know he's out teaching children's church right now, but go watch a football game with Shane, and you'll get the same thing. We all, if we're honest, are all about fairness. Is it fair? I grew up in a household, okay, this was drummed into me. I grew up in a household, I was the oldest of three boys, I think I've told you, and it was a constant refrain from my two younger brothers. It's not fair, why is Jeff allowed to do that? Now, in all honest, part of it and I tell them now, now that we're you know all in our 50s, I sit there and say, "Well, part of it is because Jeff knew how to milk the system. I knew exactly how to work my father in such a way to get exactly what I wanted. But the biggest issue of fairness in my household growing up didn't come from me or my brothers. It came one year from my mother, the least expected. Of all, and she knows this story, so if she listens to it online, she'll be fine with it. All of that fine. But I can remember this one time, I was in sixth grade, and I was given the assignment, science project, build a suspension bridge. Now, if you all know me, you knew that was a, that, that's almost like, that has to do with predestination, because that's almost like save yourself. Okay? Talk about inability. I mean, even to this day, if I walk into the house with a light bulb expecting to change the light, Evy's like this, okay? Call Mike McClure, please, quickly, don't change that light bulb. So I was given the assignment of construct a suspension, suspension bridge, and of course, there's no way I could do it, and I don't know how, but I got my mother, not my father, to do this, and she was so proud of this suspension bridge. <laughs> she just thought... This takes Golden Gate, blows it away. Okay, this is the great. And she couldn't wait till we turned in her suspension bridge. <laughs> and she was like, I wonder what grade we're going to get. Are you getting it back today? Are you getting it back today? And of course, there was a day I got it back. And do you know what we got on that suspension bridge? We got a B. Now, of course, my reaction to a B is a B. I'm like excited because that was a good grade for me. Oh, she was outraged that she did not get an A. (laughs) Now say it with me. What did she say? It's not fair. Now, you know, we are being scriptural when we do that, right? Because that's the protester. That's the objections that Paul is addressing. Look at verse 14 and put it in context. You know, doctrine never drops out of the sky. This is not how God gives his word. He doesn't kind of vomit it or drop it out of the sky for us to just proof text it. It's always in the middle of a context. It's always in the middle of a story. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And yes, he is, make no bones about it, he is asserting and declaring the beautiful... And I do hope, I have, I have big dreams. I want you to actually walk out of here today and say, wow, the, I don't understand everything about the doctrine of election, but I do view it as a beautiful doctrine. And Paul is answering objections because he's just been telling the story of Israel from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now what comes next? Moses. So we kind of know the story. And he is posing the objections that we get so verse 14 says what shall we say then in other words i know how you're going to respond what do we say in response to this is there injustice on god's part in other words is god being unfair and how does he answer it he says by no means and the teaching of this passage is that god is just he is righteous And Paul is defending the righteousness, the utter faithfulness, and justice of God. And he does so by giving us two reasons. Two reasons in defense of the righteousness of God. One is the testimony of the story. And two is the logic of the story. So the consistent testimony, in other words, the unity of the entire word of God, and then the logic of the entire word of God. Okay? The first part is verses 14 to 18. The second part is verses 19 to 24. And how about that? I threw you all off base. You expect Presbyterians to always give three-part sermons. (laughs) The text breaks into two parts. We're giving a two-part sermon this morning. Look with me at verse 14, the first part, the testimony of the story. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses quoting here out of Exodus 33, that Rick read earlier, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and now he's quoting Exodus chapter 9, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he, will, he wills. Okay? Now, there are many controversial statements in this section of Scripture, and there are statements that can be misunderstood and misapplied. And as we wade into the heart of mystery, we need to approach this with much care and much humility. Now, without a doubt, Paul is asserting quite clearly the doctrine of election, even the doctrine of double predestination. We can't shy away from that. I had an Old Testament professor back at Westminster Seminary by the name of Bruce Walkie, and he was my Hebrew professor. I wish I could say I remember as much Hebrew as I do his prayers. But he would pray before class, and it always just impressed me, the godliness of his prayer. And he always would always pray, Lord, may we come under your scriptures not on top of it where we're questioning it, not even alongside of it where we think we understand it all fully, but may we come with a posture of humility and surrender, submitting to your words, submitting to your scripture, because even if we don't get it, it has authority over our lives. So our job, our posture, needs to be as we approach this, especially as we approach like verse 18 that says, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens. He directly hardens whomever He wills. Our job's not to come on top of that, or even next to it, but to come under it and submit to whatever it says. Now remember also what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Just in the way of real brief review... We first, When we first approached this text, we spoke of how our condition, now let me remind you what our condition is, dead in our trespasses and sins, totally unable because of our deadness, the simple question, what can a dead person do, necessitates the... Ne- The fact of divine intervention if we are ever going to be rescued or forgiven or redeemed. See, if we're going to argue or object, and remember that this is the context of of the passage. The context of the passage is Paul is answering his protesters. He's answering objections to this. If we're going to do that, and the objection is about God not being fair... Well, I'm reminded of the statement by David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now listen very carefully to what, he was a physician before he was a preacher, so we'll call him the good doctor. Listen to what the good doctor says. He says, Paul is saying, if you want to bring in the notion of justice or fairness, very well, you will get your wages. You will get what you deserve. And the wages of sin is death. If God's salvation were totally a matter of justice and righteousness, All would be damned. Nobody has any claim upon God's mercy. The fact that anybody has ever received mercy is entirely because of the character and nature of God. Now listen to this. He says, the real mystery is not that everybody is not saved, but that anybody is saved. He says, that is the mystery. God owes nothing to anybody. The text tells us clearly, and again, friends, come under this. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, here's part of the application. This ought to lead us, and we're going to talk more about this, to wonder and worship along with them. How in the world can I ever possibly believe? And who am I that God would show me such divine mercy? Because verse 16 says, so then it depends not on human will, because if it did, I would always will something other than God, or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, if it depended on us, not only could we not do it, we could not save ourselves, we do not have the ability because of our condition, but it would have to be by his mercy. See, for mercy to be mercy, it must be 100% completely and wholly depend on God. Also, let's remember something else. Let us also remember that nowhere in the Scriptures is this a doctrine with which for us to club unbelievers or kind of to show off our smarts or our knowledge before other believers. In fact, even, and I'm always amazed by this, you know, John Calvin, okay, Calvinism, the great Calvinism, if you look at his magnum opus, his systematic theology of his institutes, which is roughly 1,500 pages divided into four books or four volumes, and you look at where he takes up the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, He does it in Book 3, after he's covered some eight or 900 pages. And he even says in it, this is not a doctrine for the faint of heart, it is one for only mature believers. And if we're going to be biblical with this doctrine, we need to remember that it is always part of worship. Think about Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul says, And listen to Paul almost explode in worship. And this is where we should be glad Paul's writing in Greek and not English, because talk about English, this is one humongous run-on sentence. It's like he never catches a breath. And I wonder if this is our posture and this is how we think of divine election. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in order that we may be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, in the Beloved. And I could keep going, that's only verses 3 to 6. There are six more verses to the run-on sentence in the original language. So let's apply this, because Scripture and the doctrine of election is not for us to feel self-important that we have the right of information. Paul wrote to Timothy, the aim of our charge, the goal, the telos, the direction, the purpose of anything we teach, of all teaching, is love. So the aim of the doctrine of election is to galvanize our hearts, to explode in love to God and love for others. So let me ask you, is your posture one of worship? one of incredible gospel astonishment of the incredible reality that God would show mercy to anyone, let alone to you. Or are we all about the philosophical reconciliation, doing this or that? Because the biblical posture is love and worship and humility. The aim of our charge, the goal of all teaching, All instruction, Paul tells his protege, his disciple Timothy, is love. Is that our aim? Now, what is Paul doing in the first part of this passage? He's presenting the objection. Is God unjust, not righteous, because of his election? And he's picking up the scriptural story where he left off. Verse 13, left off with the end of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What comes next? Moses and the exodus. And he comes and he says in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, these verses provide the reason why God is righteous, and thus the answer to the objection that God is unjust. And so why does this provide a reason why God is righteous? The commentator Thomas Schreiner puts it this way, and I love how he puts it. He says, God is righteous because he is committed to proclaiming his name and advertising his glory by showing his goodness, grace, and mercy to people as he freely chooses. The righteousness of God is defended, then, by appealing to his freedom and absolute sovereignty as the creator. No human being deserves his mercy. In other words, the stunning thing for Paul was not that God rejected Ishmael and Esau, but that he chose Isaac and Jacob, since they did not deserve to be included in his merciful and gracious purposes. He writes, human beings are apt to criticize God for excluding anyone, But this betrays a theology that views salvation as something God ought to bestow on all equally. So verse 18 then says, so then, and this kind of finishes up this section, the testimony of the story, is that so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And Schreiner says we should add that when God hardens Pharaoh, He hardens one who was already a sinner. One who came into the world corrupted as a son of Adam. Paul isn't teaching here that God hardens someone who was good. And at the same time, one cannot elude the conclusion that Paul teaches double predestination here. And this is not contrary to his gospel, but secures the theme that faith is wholly a gift of God. In other words, it is proclaiming the name and character. That's why I'm actually glad Rick brought up what he did out of Exodus 33. It is proclaiming the name and the character of God. It ought to amaze us that God wants to be with any of us, that God actually wants to, and not just save, but commune and to love. He's proclaiming His name in all its glory. The glory of salvation, the glory of judgment, the glory of wrath, the glory of power. In all his glory. And yes, there is a tension. A tension that is not resolved in the scriptures. A tension that is at the heart of the mystery that God is unequivocally, completely, 100% sovereign. And we are unequivocally, 100% responsible. And yes, that's a tension that we are called, I'm going to invoke the prayers of Bruce Waltke, that we are called to come under and submit to. That's hard to hear, isn't it? We don't like this. See, that proves our humanness right there. Don't you want to just bristle a little bit? Talk about proving our humanness. But we're called to surrender to the testimony of the story. And marvel at the mercy of God. And you concert, the more we marvel at the mercy of God and the wonder of his mercy, the easier it is for us to surrender. When our eyes get detracted from the mercy, and we think it could be our enlightenment, our understanding, but I can figure it out. What about this question over here? What if we come around it? We're taking our eyes off the mercy. Next, look with me at verse 19, and now the logic of the story. And again, in context, what is Paul doing? He's answering another protest, another objection, because verse 19 says, you will say to me then, so notice Paul's saying, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, why, why do you still blame people? Who can resist his will? Now listen to Paul's answer, and this is the logic of the story. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You know, if you're reading the Spruce Creek Bible reading, do you almost get the sense here it's preparing for Job 38 a little bit? You know, kind of like, all right, Job, let's go. You want to have on it? Put on your big boy pants. Let's throw a little tornado, a little whirlwind. Let's see, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Were you kind of hanging out with me and just kind of calling forth the sun and the stars and naming them and doing all this and spreading the foundation? Did you kind of call forth Leviathan and all of that? Where were you? Let's go, Job. Answer back to me. I'm waiting. You're so smart. Come on. You're going to tell me? This is the logic of the story. And he evokes here again the story of Israel because now, and think about this, this is brilliant how Paul is doing it. He's gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses, to now he invokes the prophets, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah, because he's quoting here from Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, and Jeremiah 18 when he's invoking the illustration of the potter and the clay. And so right after he says, But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And listen to the humility, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Tim Keller points out, he says, here he says that God made us and that therefore he has rights of ownership. All by itself, this would probably be a sufficient answer to the question of fairness. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? We are so far below God that we have neither the wisdom nor the right to question our Creator. Do you hear how Paul, in the text, in the context of the, of the text, is answering? What he's doing is warning about the presumptuousness of man trying to answer back to God. Schreiner again says, Paul's response to the protester then is this. How can finite, frail, and weak human beings venture to dictate to God how the world should be run? Who do we think we are that we presume to call God to account and pass judgment on him? By definition, the creator has absolute freedom to do what he wants with his creatures, just as a potter exercises sovereignty over the clay he forms." And Schreiner goes on, he says, Again, we see the tension between divine sovereignty and the reality and authenticity of human choices. Paul upholds both truths and doesn't try to produce a philosophical answer for his readers. These verses inform us why God made human beings whom he planned to punish to exhibit the full extent of his wrath and power. Paul's not afraid to leave tension just out there. Friends, we need to come under that. What do we do with this? How does this change us? Remember that the aim of our charge is not information. The aim of our instruction, the aim of our teaching, if we're going to be Pauline, if we're going to be biblical, is love. See, if we understand rather than trying to figure everything out, That if we got what we deserve, if God were actually fair, we would get our wages, what we deserve, which is death, hell, damnation, then the fact that God shows us mercy ought to produce galvanizing worship and a humble love toward others. Tim Keller says, nothing can fill you with so much praise and joy as to realize that not One molecule of credit for your salvation belongs to you, but to the Lord. If I can take any of the credit, I can praise myself. But since I can take no credit, God gets all the praise. And he says it is also humbling. People who know this doctrine are able to look at others and truly, literally say, there but for the grace of God go I. Without believing in election, that kind of talk is only relative But when we see people who disbelieve or are leading immoral lives or who are in other ways foolish or wicked, we have a tendency to think that our openness, our moral sense, our willingness to repent, this is the difference between them and us. But the doctrine of election levels us and humbles us. We even get humbled about our humility, for even that is a gift. We are now able to treat everyone with respect and dignity and condescend to no one. Can you imagine what kind of community, what kind of beautiful community of we would be if instead of arguing about all of the philosophical things that, let me level us for a second, we don't and can't know the answers to. But if instead. We got on board and surrendered to the purpose of God. That we would say like with Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has mind-blowingly blessed us. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and set apart and blameless in his sight. And in love. Notice he says in love. In love. He predestined us. So what motivated God? Nothing but love. He loved the unlovely. He fills the empty. He strengthens the weak. He comes alongside the lonely and the abandoned and the marginalized with presence and with communion. In love he predestined us for adoption of sons according to his purpose. This ought to take us, instead of arguing about free will, we ought to fall on our faces and say, what wondrous love is this? This is absolutely incredible. And it's why we come to worship, and these two things are not mutually exclusive, with unbelievable awe and reverence and shout from the rooftops to the Lord, all the earth. We have such a beautiful tradition and a beautiful faith. And it ought to create a beautiful community that loves with a humble love, never looks down on anyone else. How dare we ever look down on anyone else when God didn't look down, but instead came and entered our condition. The word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. The Son of Man was not ashamed to call us His brothers. And He took upon, ourselves, upon Himself our wretchedness. Friends, let's pray. Draw us, Father, deeper into Your love as we now come to the table And as we participate in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've invited us to feast with you. You feed us with yourself. And Lord, may we humbly come and taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.